Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast. I'm Pete Neal and I'm joined today by my ever-dutiful colleague, Dan Rees. How you doing, Danny? How do you, Pete? It's only like yesterday I saw you in the field down south. I think because it was yesterday, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're separated by the internet. Indeed, indeed. So we, for quite a while, we haven't done one of our sort of film reviews, one of our war film reviews, I should say. So tonight, or I should say today, rather, um, we are doing one of my favourite war films, and that is The Sea of Sand. Uh, if you're listening in America, you may have it known as um, The Desert Patrol. Now, this is one of my favourite war films of all time, and it's one of the earliest ones I can remember watching as a kid, because I can remember having it recorded on VHS back in the very early 90s. And, um, yeah, and it, it is was one of those... It's definitely in my top ten. Uh, for numerous reasons, uh, what we'll cover tonight, because it is actually a really good film. Um, obviously, there will be spoilers if you've not seen it before, but you've had since 1958 to watch the film. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so there is spoilers if you haven't watched it. So um, if you want to watch it first and listen to what we've got to say about it, Turn off now, then come back to us later. If not, enjoy the ride. That's very apt to say ride with the uh, with the unit in question, especially. Indeed. So, what is the Sea of Sand? Well, the Sea of Sand is basically it is a film about the Long Range Desert Group, and there isn't actually that much out there. Uh, obviously, in recent months or year or so, uh, we've had Rogue Heroes, uh, where 
that's portraying the early days of the SAS, and you got the long range desert group are in that. Um, but really, prior to that, there isn't really a massive amount. I'm, I don't know if you can think of any films other than The Sea of Sand and Rogue Eagle, Rogue Eagles, <laughs> Rogue, Rogue Heroes, <laughs> where, where we actually see the long range desert group. Because I don't think we do. No, Pete, no. I think with the Long Range Desert Group, or the LRDG, as we should know from now on, it's one of these really obscure ad hoc units that were formed, you know, in theatre in North Africa in July 1940. And it's it's kind of it's kind of gone under the radar for many years. Uh, yeah, as we as those of you who know that LRDG was made up of not like a recruited like a regular army unit. It was recruited more hand picked men, especially men who had been in North Africa before the war. And we know famous in the 20s and 30s when they were hunting through the Valley of the Kings or the Tombs of the Pharaohs. But also, uh, as for now, various oil companies were exploring the desert looking for oil reserves and also just general explorers looking to find the gaps in the in the, in the Sahara. So, so men who'd served with these these enterprises, shall we say, who had joined the forces or were still in Cairo at the time of the war were soon snapped up to join this ad hoc band of, band of vagabonds and pirates. They are indeed. They are very um, unconventional, shall we say, in the way the rest of the army was being run, very much how the SAS became as well from there, from day one for them. So... Um, and also, I think a lot of people do confuse like the LRDG with the SAS, and people and and some people getting confused as in the LRDG became the SAS because their job roles, in a way, were quite similar. And like the sort of the ethos of the two units were very very similar as well. I think. Well, yeah, it, it, the LRDG was mainly designed for deep penetration. And ideally, not raids, but more deep penetration. They were looking for enemy activity. They were used for hunting for bases like wadis that could be used for for refueling, but also they were used for pilot and aircrew rescue. So they were more they're more behind the line, sneaky beaky, rather than the tooth and nail, as in the SAS were for raiding parties. That's right, and obviously when the SAS is created. The LRDG do, to an extent, do work side by side for them because, as we as yeah, as as we know, um, they met the LRDG after their very first operation um, that just went completely sidewards, and those of them that were left linked up with the LRDG, and subsequently those members stayed with them, and they were using their transport. Um, so I think that's sort of I think that's also where people get confused with that as well, where they say, "Oh, yeah, the LRDG became the SAS," um, but I think that's where that confusion comes from. I think. Yeah, the LRDG never went into Europe. They stayed in North Africa, and they, they were carrying yeah. on doing their mapping operations and stuff well into 1945, and you know, disbanded only when the war came to an end, and there was no role for them. But as you, as you said, P.S., various members of the LRDG did go on to serve in the SAS. And the most famous one who's still with us is Mike Sadler, the most famous SAS member, well, LRDG and SAS member, um, who also went on the uh, Arctic explorations after the war. 
he was a well-renowned desert navigator and he knew the sun compasses and take how to take star um star locations by the time star fixes and he mastered desert navigation that's why i think in a way he was cherry picked to later join the sas oh he definitely was i think i think that's what made him stand out among the rest but you know Mike Sadler, he was one of many, because that was one of the things that uh, David Sterling, who uh, founded the SAS, you know, that was something he was really impressed by, was by this, you know, this this unit of blokes who could literally find a pin in a in a hill of pins, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because they were fantastic at what they did. You know, these blokes were excellent navigator it was almost um sea-like really isn't it you know they're using sextants and things like that like you said with the night navigation very similar to how they're doing it at sea and i think you know they they were just an outstanding um breeder soldier i mm. think maybe we digress so yes. let's get back to the film let's our get usual digression into, into, into the nuts <laughs> yeah. and bolts of something but the, the opening scenes, it comes up with the old traditional, as you know, the, those of you who know your black and white films, it comes up with the traditional uh, prologue that it's, it's October 1942 and the LRDG is harassing the Africa Corps as the 8th Army prepare for its assault on Al Alamein. And with that, you've got this opening scene of them um, like at an oasis and uh, they're doing a vehicle, like not a vehicle swap, but you know something's happening because you've got a Chevy truck, which is iconic for the Long Range Desert Group or LRDG. So you've got the Chevy truck and another, and a, and a lorry's pulled up beside it. And you see kit bags being thrown into the side of it. So obviously that's the kit of these blokes. You don't know what's going on. But then quite quickly, you work out they're actually picking up two blokes to go and do a job with them. Um, but obviously amongst that would most likely be stuff like post and all that sort of thing as well. So they're basically almost just doing like a milk run sort of uh, mm. sort of a job. But that's where we also meet the two of the first main characters as well, because that opening scene just before that truck pulls up, uh, we see the character Blanco. Um, and Blanco is played by, oh, what's his name? Percy something, his name is. Percy Hibbert. Now, Percy Hibbert, he's, he, I don't think he's ever really had any major roles. He's always been in a supportive role, but he's notorious for like the 1950s and 1960s, um, been in quite a lot of war films. Um, he's one of those actors where... You'll recognise him, but you might not necessarily know know, know his name. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, he so he plays uh, Blanco. Then just as Blanco sort of steps off the truck to light a cigarette, his mate steps off the truck or steps from around the truck with a tanky berry on. And he's, I'd say, he's the most famous out of all the cast. And that is uh, Richard Attenborough. Uh, so he plays a character called Brody. He's a bit of like a cheeky Cockney sort of guy. Uh, he's an orphan as well. He is he's an, an orphan, orphan. yeah. Join the, the army, army at 14. 14. Yeah. And we work out quite quickly, because they have a lot of banter, the two of them. Blanco and Brody have quite a lot of banter between, but you actually then sort of realise they're actually best mates. 
because that that relationship sort of develops throughout the film. You actually then realise that actually these two blokes are actually best mates. So there's like little snippets here and there in the film um, where you actually go, actually, yeah, these these two blokes have got a really strong bond together. Um, so they've done the pickup. They've picked up uh, two more supporting characters, another main character, which is uh, Captain Williams. So you've got Captain Williams, who's from the Royal Engineers, and his corporal, uh, who's played by oh, Summit Foster. Barry Foster. That's it, Barry Foster. So he plays his corporal. And anyway, they jump on the truck to go to their camp, wherever it is. And that's in the first scene, you see one of the nice little details. This is this this film is brilliant for the little details. And soon as um, that scene of them sort of driving off on that oasis across the desert, um, you see them messing around with the sextant. Uh, no, the uh, sun, uh, sun compass, sorry, straight away. So it's those first little details that you see. Yeah, it's really nice touch. I, I I made a note. I had to rewatch the film today just to make sure I got extra details right. I know I wrote my notes. I wrote the sun compass and using the watch for time. It's, it's a fantastic. Yes. No, it's not like a current film. Where it just happens to be there. They uh, they you can see the importance of desert navigation and using the, the, the constantly watching the watch and the sun compass and, and the speedometer. You know, good example for that is during the first Gulf War in ninety one. The desert patrol vehicles, the SAS were actually fitted with a second speedo so the commander could keep a watch for you know speed, time and distance, you know what I mean? To it show this goes to show the importance even in those days of it. It does, yeah. And I think with all these little details and how good everything looks, because even the blokes, like the way they're you know, the way they're dressed literally looks like they are in the LRTG. And you know, you could take photographs of the men themselves and put them to the cast of um, Sea of Sand. And you go, yeah, they've nailed this right on the head with their sort of misfit sort of look and a couple, not not with like great big bushy beards, but like unshaven yeah. and that general scruffiness. Now, I found out there's a reason why I think this film is so good in that way is because their advisor was Bill Shaw or Bill Kennedy Shaw, who's a very notable member of the LRDG. He was their intelligence officer and one of their founding members of the LRDG as well, because he then later on transferred to the SAS and um, was the intelligence officer for first SAS. He was. Um, He ended up becoming a major golden era of films really for if you're interested in Britain mm. in World War Two is the fifties and sixties because you have the veterans themselves actually doing it. You know, I, as I say what you said mentioned about the kit, the kit is being worn perfectly. A lot of the extras involved in the filming were servicemen at the time. You know, this is nineteen fifty eight. They're out they actually they put a notice of thanks in the film to the, the British garrison of Tripoli. My grandfather was out there in forty six, forty seven. But it, it goes to show the kit has been worn right. It's not like they've walked through Soldier of Fortune covered in super glue and come back out again. The kit is it yeah. just it looks worn and tatty and but being worn with purpose. Not you, the blokes are wearing the kit. Their kit's not wearing them. Yeah, exactly. And and the other thing as well is that 
every member of that main cast, all of them served during the war as well. <laughs> Which is the other thing as well, is that they know how to wear the kit. So they don't need some advisor to say, oh, you, you need to put that here. You need to wear it round this way. They're just automatically doing it. Because end of the day, the war only ended 15 years ago. When you look at it like that, yeah, this was filmed in nineteen. This, you know, this came out in nineteen fifty-eight, so it probably was filmed in nineteen fifty-seven. So, not about fifteen years beforehand, these blokes were getting demobbed. So, oh, yeah. that, so it's only so it's very fresh in the heads. You know, I could just like roll it off like with Richard Attenborough. You know, he was in the RAF uh, during the Second World War. In the um, RAF, he ended well. He ends up in the RAF uh, film unit. Filming uh, the bomb damage on the uh, mission, so like all the like, missions up to Dresden and Hamburg and all that, he he sat in the Lancaster with a camera filming it, assessing the bomb damage. Um, so you got Percy Hibbert, who plays who plays Blanco. He was in the Royal Army Ordnance Corps, and he got captured by the Japanese, and he spent four years in a prisoner of war camp, and it was the and. Just a quick one for, for for Percy Hibbert, which I know about, is that he also is a character in Bridge Over the River Cry. Why, sorry, Cry <laughs> Bridge Over the River Cry. He's one of the, he's one of the he's one of the cast of that, and they actually used him as a consultant because the camp that they're portraying was the camp that he was actually in when he was captured. So they used him on site as a technical advisor to say, right, what are these blokes? Well, how are these how are these blokes meant to look? And you know, how are thing how were things done? Because um, oh, going going completely on a tangent now, but <laughs> at the beginning of Bridge of the River Kwai, they're playing they're whistling Colonel Bogey. That's because of per Percy Hibbert because he said that was the tune that we always played when we were marching and things like that. So it's because of Percy Hibbert that went into the film because he's like, yeah, that's what we did that all the time. Yeah, he's, I think with all these films of the fifties, well, I, as I say, we've gone through. They introduce all the characters, but they don't just give you, you know, name, rank, serial number. They give you a bit of the backstories, you know, like you now they mentioned, oh, he's got so many children, all that. But it was interesting as well with this one is they show how the LRDG being an, an ad hoc unit, so to speak, it was made up of various social classes. You know, we have a regular officer in the group, but also we have is made apparent that we got officers who were made up purely for the war. You know, we have an orphan yeah. soldier. We have professional guardsmen, you know, who are very proud of being guardsmen. The LRDG was made up of various patrols. There was a guards patrol, a yeomanry patrol, a Kiwi patrol. And we do see that in the film, which is fantastic. You know, the radio operator on the main op uh, main exercise we see in a bit is a Kiwi, and he's quite proudly knocking around camp in a very battered lemon squeezer. Nesbitt. Sergeant Nesbitt, yeah. And, he, yeah, so, yeah, he... Um, he's played by Vincent Ball, who becomes quite famous in Australia. And he's still alive today. He's 99 years old. Oh, bless him. He's still alive today. I think there's only two cast members that are still alive today. And that's Vincent Ball, who plays Nesbitt. He's 99. Um, and he served in the Royal Australian Air Force as a wireless gunner, wireless operator gunner in the uh, Royal Australian Air Force during World War Two, And... Uh, Michael Craig, who plays Captain Cotton, he's 94, and he, he was in the Merchant Navy. He was during the war. So they're the two cast members. As we speak at this moment in time, they're the only two cast members who are still alive today. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
But I said, so like you said, mentioned about officers that were just made up for, you know, for the purpose of the war. And that's uh, Michael Craig's character, Captain Cotton, um, because he was an architect. Um, you know, he says he's a little bit of like a backstory uh, that I was originally an architect. Um, so he's just a, you know, a wartime officer, really. And the uh, professional soldier or the professional officer, you know, if word it how you will, uh, is played by uh, John Grayson. Um, and he plays Captain Williams, he does. So he's a career officer from the Royal Engineers and he comes to help him with this job. So what is this job that they're being sent to do? Well, they've got to go and blow up an ammunition, blow up an ammunition dump. Uh, well, so that was always a fuel dump. Is yeah, it a fuel dump? Fuel, fuel dump. 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 That's the one. So they've got to go and blow up this fuel dump. But they tried doing it before, but they couldn't get in because there was a minefield blocking it. So that's why these two engineers have been sconded to them. So Captain Williams and. Um, Matheson, Corporal Matheson, have been sconded to them because it's their job to clear the minefield to get them in. So um, yeah, so then they head off. They head off on their way. So they get their briefing, and obviously we start. You know, we've got those little backstories happening, and uh, the blokes having a bit of banter. There's quite a lot of banter in this, actually. To be fair, you know, it's quite realistic. You know, with the lads like um, having a pop at each other now and again, not in like a evil not horrible way it's just general banter like just general forcey humor sort of thing constructive um, abuse it is yeah yeah um he's like just before they well when they're getting the trucks all loaded up they're getting all the, the jerry cans on there well fuel cans sorry and all the other bits of kit and equipment that they're going to need onto the chevy trucks uh brody uh richard Attenborough's co- uh character he he for some reason this character <laughs> he always wears his cap badge on the right side for some bizarre reason. I haven't quite worked out why he does that, to be honest. Annoy the guards, um, probably. It is probably to annoy the guards because he has a bit of a gripe against the guards, doesn't he? He's always trying to wind them up. Um, because their troop sergeant is a guardsman, he's a cold stream guardsman. And uh and he's walking along with uh who is I think Sims, a character called Sims, and he's sort of like the moaner, complainer of and the suspicious one of 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 the main sort of cast. Um, and they're walking along because he's he's actually a, a grenadier guard because because obviously with the Long Ways Desert Group, a lot of them they're all wearing the cap badges of the regiments they all come from, so it is quite misfitting all these different cap badges walking around. So uh, yeah, so Brody's walking with his mate uh, Sims. And obviously Brody's got his cap badge on the wrong side, right on the other side of his head. And uh, their troop sergeant pulls him up and he says, he goes, what are you doing, Brody? He's like, get your hat on straight. And uh, and he pulls and he pulls it round, but he doesn't pull it back. Down. He literally just turns his berry round. It's just like this, uh, like a mushroom on the top of his head and keep, keeps on walking. And he turns to Sims and he goes, um, he's like, that's short on the war by six months, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> And I need to go. He says something like "bloody guards," and he turns. Oh, because his mate is uh, a guardsman. He's like, "Oh, bloody guardsman!" No offense to you, of course, Sims. Okay, there's a character keep on walking on. <laughs> no, I like to, like the details, especially when they they set off. Because he, he even in the beginning of the beginning of the the great convoy, as it were, 
they talk about flimsies. Now, those of you who are military vehicle geeks and like me will know that before we had the Jerry, the fuel can, or nicknamed the Jerry can, a twenty liter Jerry can, Britain, in its infinite wisdom, decided to to per, to or procure cans which had the nickname of the flimsy, and they were just basically. A, a, a posh biscuit tin and th- made of thinner steel. And it was well known in the desert that if you loaded up a load of these in the back of a wagon and drove over a slightly bumpy blancmange, that they would split in half and you'd lose half your petrol. So it's quite an interesting bit in the beginning of the convoy. They talk about how the, the cans are, uh, are hissing and popping and you're losing fuel. But this is, is actually, they chose the, to use these flimsy cans because they are lighter than jerry cans. Now, I don't know how much truth in that there is. I'd rather a stronger can than a weaker can. But it's, it's a, I think it's a really nice touch. And things like they get stuck in the sand, they dig out the vehicle using the sand ladders and the proper rolling out mats. And you know, obviously the, the technical director being ex the intelligence officer of the unit, he said, no, this is how he would have done it. Everyone mucks in, everyone does it. Yeah, and that's an interesting point you bring up about the flimsies because I, I can't remember if it's Captain Williams or if it's Corporal Nesbitt, the two newcomers, um, because you've got the scene of they've, they've just not long left and they're stopped, basically they've stopped to brew up and they're cooking sausage, well, it looks like sausages on uh, on the uh, flip, on cut, on cut up flimsy cans. And they're saying how, how rubbish that these fuel cans are. And it's Nesbitt, the New Zealander, turns around he goes well yeah he goes yeah yeah they are they are rubbish but they do have other uses because he goes look over there let's say we cut them up and use them for brewing up so when you actually think about it you go well the bottom half is the stove then what they've done is they've cut a quarter from the bottom of another petrol kit and using that as their frying pan um so yeah so he's gone yeah it's bad but look but look what we've done with it instead Well, it's more, I think it was known as a Benghazi. It was a Benghazi oven. Where's Chuckles when we need him? It was a Benghazi, Benghazi oven where you basically fill, you cut a petrol can in half, you fill half of it with sand, you soak that in petrol. That's right. You can light it, and then obviously then you've got your multi-purpose brewing, frying, um, burning thing. But then yeah, obviously exactly. the amount of smoke that must give off with petrol and all sorts must be quite oh, interesting. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, because they even mention in, in it as well when they talk about hot food and they're like, no, because Captain Cotton turns, because this is like very later on in the film, uh, when they go, right, let's um, well, let, let's have something to eat then. Um, and they said, no, well, one of the lads says, oh, can we brew up now, sir? And he goes, yeah, but cold rations, I don't want the smoke. We're still too close to, uh, <laughs> to, to the Germans, like. So, yeah, so it's like, well, yeah, like you said, it's going to produce a lot of smoke. And then in that... He tells like guys, no, no brewing up is going to create too much smoke. Yeah, it, it's, just, it's just all these little touches, especially if you're interested in early British stuff, it's just so worth watching and really taking it. Obviously, yeah. we'll, we'll cover the inaccuracies of the film later oh, on, yeah, being of course. ultimate geeks that we are, pushing my, yeah. my pushing my glasses up my nose as I speak. Yeah. But, um, you know, just little things, you know, like I say, staff, they, 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 they drive at night and they're doing star fixes based on the time. You know, yes. literally they say, right, three, two, one, stop, check stars. You know, and it's like, they are, they, they have taken, they're not, they're not, they're not hiding that thing away. Like you've seen a lot of current, uh, could be careful what I say here, in current programs based on transport through the desert where it's, it's not a glamorous thing, but it's so important that they've been put it in there. 
It is, and I think this film, because knowing obviously as a, as a as a child growing up watching this film, uh, but knowing what I know now, this is definitely one of those war films where you can watch it, and it's actually giving you factual information of what these blokes were doing, it, and it's not very often you find a war film that's actually like that. There, there's there, they are out there, you know. Don't get me wrong; there's some very good war films out there, but this is almost like in a sense a dramatized documentary in a sense because they got so much stuff right especially with those little details as well i, I just oh it's brilliant i just love this film it's it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> how many dvds worth of you were burnt out uh well obviously the vhs recording that went long 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 ago um i think soon as dvds became a thing it went in the bin um and then got the dvd and i've had the dvd ever since so i don't I haven't well, i haven't worn it out yet but it is available on youtube now so if you if you do want to watch it and you haven't got it on dvd or you don't want to spend out money on getting a dvd cuz it is available on like ebay and amazon and all that Go on to YouTube at the moment because uh, it is on there. The full length of the film is on YouTube. You just type in the Searsand movie or film and it does come up. I think it might be bracketed the Desert Patrol as well. I can't yeah. rightly remember. But it is on there. The film is on YouTube if you do want to watch it. The first bit of action we get in the film, the first rounds fired, so to speak, is when they, they have a, um, a Messerschmitt 109 fly over and obviously they... they the obviously no, it's be... the no, it's the um, German reconnaissance vehicle. I thought it was the plane first. No, planes. Uh, the plane is afterwards because because the plane is looking for them after they've done the job because they're chase the plane's sort of chasing them through the desert. Those of you who like your wartime vehicles, especially German armor, will, oh, will, you, will watch, you, will watch you, a patrol car <laughs> and, and giggle slightly. <laughs> I'm sure you can see the plywood fall off in points. <laughs> yeah, I they think it's. So I think it's trying to be that German reconnaissance vehicle that has the twenty mil gun on it. Yes, yeah. That, I think that's what I think that's what it's trying to be because it's like the bottom shape of it is kind of there. Just go, yeah, I know what I think. I know what they're trying. Then it's got this weird turret on the top. <laughs> I think. It's, it, I think. <laughs> Problem with Sea Sands, it suffers from what every post-war film suffers from—the fact that all the German armor has ended up as baked bean cans. And they they have to supplement it with American slash post war slash a Land Rover with plywood screwed to it. Yeah, which I think that reconnaissance vehicle is. I think I think that's a Land Rover or something like that. That's just literally had that put on top of it. But yeah, it, at the end of the day, it's far enough away. You could squint one eye and it could pass off as a reconnaissance vehicle. Um, but it just goes to show you they they bring out the heavy weapons and the vehicles are all vi fixed with Vic, uh, fitted with Vickers K machine uh, Vickers K. No, I've just been talking about Vickers K. Vickers yeah. machine guns. Vickers machine guns. That's the later SAS stuff coming in again. Mm. The Vickers machine guns. It would have been nice to see because I know some of the Lewis guns, Lewis guns, but also yeah. boys. anti tank rifles were fitted to some allies. Yes, because yeah, they did fit them with boys anti tank rifles. They were more common than Bren guns being fitted. But we'll, mm. co we'll cover we'll cover the German yeah, yeah. machine guns in a bit. Oh gosh! <laughs> Another oh no, it's the fifties. We can't afford German kit. Uh, it always been yeah. like burnt or scrapped. Um, yeah, so they make uh, so hey, we, we've digressed massively once again. Once again. So they've got to the objective. So we're not going to give too much away from the film, just in case you listening to it haven't 
scene because we're not going to give you a, a step-by-step commentary of, of what's going on in the film. But they get to the objective, they do the job in hand, and then they they leave. Uh, but then, obviously, they're hunted. Um, but they actually get bumped as well, don't they? Because uh, they do the job um, because uh, one of the... I can't remember what character... He's one of the uh, minor characters... Um, he gets spotted while they're letting all when they're setting the Dems charges, uh, which I think looking at it when I like thinking back to watching them set the charges, I think they're setting Lewis bombs. I'll have to have to rewatch it and double check. Yeah, I can't remember the way, or, or well, it's an interpretation of a Lewis bomb because it's like a little black sack with a stick sticking out the top of it. And I'm like, that looks like some sort of interpretation of a Lewis bomb, which was obviously created by the SAS. Um, well, Jock Lewis, who was... It could be, it could be time pencils coming out of it, but then in, in the it, film, it they don't go anything pencils. about breaking... Like, you know, yeah. Do you, everyone, everyone yeah. do... Because you know, with a time pencil, you've got to crush one end to release the acid to burn through the wire to set off the time pencil. But... yeah. Yeah, that, again, that's something I didn't think they even cover in Rogue Heroes about time. Yeah, they do cover in Rogue Heroes time pencils. I think they do, yeah. But, about, yeah, I'm not too sure. But yeah, they so they set the damn charge, and one of the blokes, he, he, he just so happens to be caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the Germans come out of this, uh, must be like their naffy or somewhere like that, walk out, see him, and he tries doing a runner, and one of the Germans shoots him with a Sten gun. <laughs> but, but not just any gun, Peter. It's Sten gun, is it, Peter? It's, it's what a Mark III Sten. Oh, it's a Mark III no. Sten. <laughs> Another one on my inaccuracies list. It is on the, it's on my inaccuracies list as well. Uh, but that's what kicks everything off. They're like, oh, no, we've been bumped. So then they start going through their process of getting out. Obviously, with all the gunfire going off, the patrols, the German patrols, the, well, vehicle patrols that are circling the uh, petrol dump, um, they hear the gunfire, so they're now honing in on it. And as they're sort of beaming around, because obviously they know who's there. You know, it's either it's either the LRDG or it's the SAS there. You know, it's like that far beyond the lines. It's going to be two group of people doing something. It's it's them. It's that two group of people. So they're starting to drive around trying to find where their harbour area is. But then, as soon as they all the lads get back to the harbour area, they get bumped. Um, so they end up getting bumped. They manage to uh, fight off the Germans. Uh, a couple of casualties. Uh, one of them being Brody. Uh, as well, not Brody. Sorry, um, Blanco. Brody's mate gets hit in the leg, so they have to throw him in the back of the uh, of the, um, the Chevy. Chevy. Yeah. Um, so they throw him in the back of the Chevy. They go right. We need to get the hell out of Dodge. So they're all in the vehicles, and they're now racing across the open desert because, like so many of these type of operations. They're always being hunted. You know, you even like you see it in like, the accounts from the SAS, you know, obviously more notably from the SAS because of what their job was literally, their job was to go and blow stuff up. So they'll go and do their job and they knew they'd be hunted as soon as they left that area. And that's what's happening to these lads. And this is where your airplane comes in because they go, oh, well, why isn't that 
because that's something they go. Why isn't the air, why isn't the airplane strafing us? You know, because they're like, well, if a plane sees it, it'll come and strafe us. And they're like, no, it's spotting. So that's then you got then you got this German sort of hunter like sort of hunter team um, of of American half tracks. <laughs> what post war? Yeah, the Africa Corps American half tracks. <laughs> <laughs> As seen in every film in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like you said earlier, it, unfortunately, as, as brilliant as this film is and how accurate it is in so many places, it does let itself down on the German vehicles and a couple of little bits and pieces. But the other little bits and pieces are like us being anoraks, but the but the garish letdowns is the vehicles, and um, so yeah, so they're being chased now by this uh, sort of. I just want to call it a sort of a hunter team um, of these four half tracks uh, now chasing them across the desert with this German observation plane, pick, uh, you know, calling out the grid references to this hunter team, and they're trying to make their way across the desert. Yeah, it's, it's um they've got to get back to headquarters because of we don't give too much away, but they discover something mm. in the fuel dump that's really important. They do. Um, they got to get back, but their radio. Which is interesting because the LRDG, you know, on the patrol, they only carried really one main set on one vehicle. Um, it gets damaged when they get initially ambushed, but they got to make uh, their way across back get back home. But a thing I noticed quite interesting when they do this initial breakout is the guardsmen are complaining that this is, this is like this. No, I can't remember which actor it is now. He complains that this is the worst patrol he's ever been on, and he, he yeah, never, that's never that Sims. That is that Sims. He's the one who's a bit of a. Bit of a moaner. He's always moaning about something. Always got some sort of superstition because he's convinced that the two engineers are Jonas. Well, that I, they're, I, bad, I, that they're bad luck. It's him, isn't it? He goes, I noted that because again, you know, this patrol is carrying a Jonah, which yeah. again, nautical term, title of the film, a sea of sand. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it links it all in. You know, bad luck, omens. You know, you know, especially with those type of operations, it's always about mascots, good luck, and superstition. So it's kind of. Um, it's nice how that linked it all, not just because it's a term of bad luck. But yeah, it's, 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 you really do uh, harass them on the way back. And of course, then not just because they're getting ambushed and they've been shot up, the vehicles start to suffer. And especially with uh, the Chevys, because yeah, by this time, again, it is what, 42, the Chevys have been hounded several thousand miles behind the uh, German Well, lines. they're just ragging them, aren't they? They're literally just pushing them to the extreme limits and they were, they were pre The Chevys the LRDG were using were actually pre-war uh, American-supplied vehicles to, I think, it was, I think it was the Egyptian government, I can't remember who it was, or one of the oil companies. So they'd already done a fair few miles before they'd actually been commandeered, yeah. but they have problems like And, and I think, uh, off the top of my head, I think during the North Africa campaign... It was obviously the same patrol isn't out every single day, but actually as a unit, the long range desert group through the whole of their formation to the end of the North Africa campaign, there was only 15 days where the entire unit wasn't out on some form of operation. It's it's an amazing, really, how the how the, the the unit kept going. Yeah, you know, during the time. But my my vehicle geekiness comes in because when they complain about low oil pressure, and then the camera cuts down to look at the dash, it's a Jeep dashboard. Is it really? That's something I wouldn't pick up on. You see, because I'm not I'm not I'm not a vehicle um, fanatic. 
<laughs> so is that something I wouldn't really pick up on? To be honest, I know it's, it's, it's one of those games. It goes back to the German half tracks, you know. It does. Oh, of course it does. Of course it does. Yeah, and, and and the lack. You know, it's like anyone who with weapons, especially, you can look at the the German, the German, you know, close brackets, open brackets, close brackets. Uh, German half tracks are fitted with German machine guns, you know, imitating some kind of MG. But all they are are brain guns with extra bit of tube welded on the front. Yeah, they are. They're really bizarre because like, you can blatantly see it's a brain gun. It's just it's like it's got a massive silencer on it <laughs> or a loud enough. <laughs> yeah. But then the other thing as well, you see, like uh, when you see these like the German patrols and that, like you see a mix. Like they're sat in the back of the uh, truck. Some of them have got K98s, but then the others have got number fours as well. They've got number three, three number fours. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah. Again, it, I think, it's, again, we said it before, it's that typical 1950s, 60s, oh, we, we need some oh, German is. stuff, let's chuck it in, you know. A little real geeky, another bit I noticed as well, so when the German, do you notice what water bottles the Germans are using? Yes. And that's down on my list of inaccuracies <laughs> as well, because that's what I've always said. I've been like, it's when it's actually quite near the end of the film, isn't it? Yeah. You know, officers taking a quick, quick drink. <laughs> His water bottle is a 44 British 44 pattern water bottle. The, the 44 first pattern jungle water bottle, yeah. also known as the budget African core canteen. Yeah. <laughs> Coming to a studio near you. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> oh, it's, it's one of those things you do chuckle at, you know. It's like I'm very much, I'm well known. My wife well known me. I pick fault in medal rooms when I see him on screen, and you know, I must get the book and check. No, obviously, the costume department weren't in work that day. Um, but though, anyway, back to the film. Yes, <laughs> before we digress even more, so uh, they they keep pushing to you got to get back to headquarters, obviously, and the vehicles are suffering from oil pressure issues. But now they they basically run out of fuel because they, they with working in a convoy like that, fuel loads got to be split between vehicles. Sometimes yeah. if it's a very long range patrol, you'd have actually a separate patrol out being a mothership. Again, yeah. it's in nautical terms, and this this mothership term even works up to the present day with long range special forces mm. patrols. Because you and, actually see that at the very beginning of the film, thinking about because when you yes. see them all driving out. The very last truck, if you look at it, it hasn't actually got a gun on. It's literally just filled up with boxes and fuel cans. It's purely a mothership going out yeah, somewhere yeah, yeah. halfway yeah. and refuel as needed. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. The, the... So as you say, like, the vehicles are suffering, uh, but then it gets to the point where the vehicle just won't go any further. And they go, right, well... We've just got a walk. We've got a walk. We've got 40 miles to go. <laughs> yeah, look, it's still, we're still 40 miles away. And we ain't going to get there just sat here. So we've got an our walk desert with like half a water bottle each. <laughs> and uh, we can't uh, give too so much away because I think it'll get it ruined the end of the film, really. I, I, I think it would. I think it would. Yeah. So we'll miss what happens on when they're sorting all the vehicles out and think, you know. Uh, when they're getting all that sorted out, but the uh, but yeah, they have to ma- then start doing what is probably the most dreaded thing that someone in the LRDG or the SAS could do would be to do a walk through the desert. And 
and obviously that did happen. Uh, we know the famous LRDG veteran who's still here today, what we mentioned earlier, uh, Mike Sadler, he did a walk through the desert. And, you know, and the, so these these things did happen. Obviously, with this patrol, I think every bad thing that could ever happen to an LRDG patrol happen, <laughs> happens to them, I think. Um <laughs> But, but yeah, it's again, it's in that context of this stuff did actually happen to these people. Yeah. And then they get they get back to base and they obviously they debrief the the CO, which is who the CO, if you if you like your badges and insignia, his shoulder titles, he has the beautifully made red on black LRDG slip-ons onto his rank slides. They're beautiful. You know, he it's does. not too much, just a little touch, and it's uh, that's nice. Um and obviously but it's, way- not, it's it's another one of those excellent details that yeah. they put into it not everyone's wearing them just him and i think one or two others but it's a little you know if, if you went to a, a reenactment event in the country everyone will be wearing them with wings and everything else but it's just those little touches you know and as it comes to the end the the officer um oh captain cotton goes through his debrief at the end of the thing and basically turns around and goes right when we're going out again then you know, it's just yeah. You know, we've done that one. It's on to the next one, and the and way... that's that thing. That's their that was their life. It's like well, yeah. that job's done. On to the next one. Once we've had our rest period, that's it. We're back out again. Yep, we get new vehicles. We'll get some new replacements in. We'll mourn our loss and lost men, and we'll carry on. You know, but I think that yeah. what I enjoy the most about the film is when it when it when the end comes. They're all in their camp cots at the end of the day. The enlisted ranks are in the mass tent. They are, yeah. So it's all the lads that have made it back. So and they're, they're all, all in bed, and then are, yeah. And suddenly, all you see in the background is the flashes and the sound of artillery. And those of you who've studied World War Two or even watched basic bits of World War Two on YouTube who have seen the iconic British Pathé news of the starting barrage of the Al Alamein campaign. You know, the, the great one of the bloke shouting fire and all the guns going yeah. off and the big flashes yeah. and all that. That's what's happening in the background, and it's like. You could see that the, this patrol is only one small cog, but it's turning the mighty machine. Yeah, and obviously that, and part of that is the they managed to get that information back that they needed to get back as well. Because if they didn't, that could have affected um, that barrage from even happening. Mm. And again, it does answer the question that I've always asked before: What was the true turning point to the war? Was it Alamein? Yeah, I believe it was. It was the first time they gave him a truly bloody nose and pushed it him was, back. Yeah, yeah. So you know, for us on the Allied side of things, when you actually look at it in the grand scheme of things, up in that up until that point, it's defeat after defeat after defeat. You had Dunkirk defeat, Crete defeat, North Africa backwards and forwards constantly. Battle of Britain, we all was, time. Oh yeah, Battle of Britain. Yeah, uh, yeah. We we won, but really, we all we had done. Like you just said, we we brought time. Um, and then with Alamein, that was a push, and that push didn't end up going back. It just ended up going straight through North Africa. Granted, then at the same time as Alamein happening, I think it was about a week before Operation Torch happened. So we're, effectively, we're sandwiching the Italians and the Africa Corps, you know, you know, where we're coming from either side now. We're sort of just crushing them into like a sandwich. But there was there was no there, there's no mass retreat as there was before. 
And then, and and people a lot of people downplay the Africa Corps, but the Africa Corps were some mm. of the best professionals of the German army of the time. They were they were very good yeah. soldiers. They the were Africa proper. Corps. They weren't. They were they were the proper trained pre a lot of them pre war chaps chaps who served in the Weimar Republic. But I think it goes to show and really to my summary of this film, The Sea of Sand, nineteen fifty eight, The Sea of Sand. It is one of those ones you've got to watch, and you've got to sit down on Sunday afternoon, sit down and enjoy it because it is. Being a, a military history geek, World War II geek, vehicle geek, the insignia medal geek that I am, it is a it's just a pleasure to watch. It is. It is an absolute pleasure to watch. I've harped on numerous times through this episode how good I think this is. And if you haven't seen it, and I know today a lot of people go, oh, black and white film, can't be asked of it. I only watch films that are colour. Please be patient with it and just look through the colour and just watch the film, basically, because it is such a good film. Such a good film. Um, but to sort of end it, what would you say is your favourite scene, Danny? Oh, that's... that's uh... To me, I love the moments when they're doing the proper desert navigation. And they're literally they're using the sun compass and the water. I know they're very little moments, but to me that is uh, that is just a, such a technical key thing to put in there, and it was such a skill and art master that in mo- more recent films has been just totally brushed over, and it's just always oh, just something that happened. The, the the pure pure art of desert navigation, star fixes, and using the sun compass. Yeah, and and the other good thing about this film as well, it's not a case of, like, they're doing it, but what they're also doing, they're giving explanation within Mm. the dialogue. So it's not a case of they're just doing it. Um, Because some people just will completely completely miss what what has just happened. Um, But then at some point, at some time, there will be an explanation as to why they're doing that as well, which I thought's really good how they work it into the dialogue for that sort of thing as well. Well, yeah, you know, what, what, you know, other than a, if you have a, a stupidly large scale map of the desert and it shows you where wadis and stuff are, yeah. a, a normal, a normal map of the desert, you may as well have a blank piece of paper. But it's just, just those little, to me, this film, it's an early film that has those great little technical things and, and they explain reasons why, you know, right, stop, it's time to take a fix. How about you, Pete? What would be your favourite moments of the whole film? Uh, I think my favourite moment of the film is... I think... I think it's... I think, well, I've got, quite, I've got a few favourite moments of the film, but I think one of my favourite scenes is like... is, uh, is that there's a moment with... Uh, Brody and Blanco. Um, they want a bit of downtime, and uh, I think it's when they're when they're doing some refueling. I think so. They got the they got the they got the cam nets out. They're all under cover, and um, and it's Blanco, Brody, and there's someone sat in between them all. I think it's I think it's their troop sergeant, or it might be it's like yeah, it's either. Sergeant Parker, who's like their troop sergeant, or it's Nesbitt, 
the New Zealand. I can't remember which one it is now, but he sat in the middle of them, and I was, and it, it kind of confirms like you know how good the relationship is between um, Blanco and um, Brody because because um, the person sat in the middle. He turns to Brody and goes, you know, why have you got to give Blanco such a hard time all the time? And he goes, Well, what do you mean? And he goes, Well, and he he says he says he, he you know, he says some sort of quick witted remark sort of thing. But then Brody just turns around with like, a proper attitude to him. He goes, Well, what's it to you? Yeah. And he's like, he, he's like, what's it to you? He's like, I don't mean nothing by it. He goes, well, leave it be then. <laughs> to be, to, I'm going to pick one more moment before I, 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 I don't go. I don't give too much detail away, but it's quite a humbling moment, really. And it involves Blanco. And he's sat there listening to the radio. Those of you who watch the film will see the film, will know. And he's he's having a quiet moment. And what comes on? Gardening hour on the radio. You know, that little yes. moment of home. Always yeah. time to get your spring bulbs in. It's coming soon. We've had the last frost. <laughs> yeah, because he's because he's a country lad as well. So you sort of work out from it. You know, he's he he seems from how like Blanco takes the Mickey out of him. He's from probably like a a village community, probably like a village farming community. And what's um, wrong with village farming communities? There's nothing wrong with that, but you know, it's just it's just how it's you know, it's just how it you know, it's just how his mate Blanco always rips the Mickey out of him all the time. He always like calls him bumpkin and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and you got, you got your cockney, so, you got your townie in your country. It's natural. Yeah, natural, you are. Yeah, yeah. Natural banter. So I think yeah, when he sat listening, like you say, he sat there listening to the radio. But it's like you said, it, it's gardening hour, and I thought that was such a nice little thing. He's like, because like for him, he'd be like. Oh, this is my sort of program. <laughs> well, well, yeah, obviously that we can't talk too much about you, the situation. Yeah, we can't because in. also but, what sort of like brings it sort of confirmation of because just because bef- before that, you know what? It's actually the scene that I've just mentioned. So I just remembered um, when Blanco snaps that other bloke for trying to have a go at Brody. Because um, what actually brings on that conversation is that Blanco he's sort of scratching his hands in the dirt when they're just sort of chilling out chatting and he says he goes he goes look at this bloody soil he goes you couldn't even grow nothing you couldn't grow nothing in this uh and that's sort of like his you know his love of gardening sort of he's like you couldn't grow nothing in this soil Mm. and then uh, again and then there's that other sort of confirmation of his sort of life back in the civilian world of you know with that gardening hour thing coming there's a photo the photo of his family that he has mm. he, the photos of the family we see. I won't give too much away. It's in front yeah. of a black and white house, lovely garden. Him, the yeah. wife, and four kids because he's been very busy. Uh, oh yeah, well they they say that as well, yeah. don't they? They always they, they especially uh, Blanco, uh, Brody. Sorry, his mate. He's always sort of ripping into him about the amount of kids he's got. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think yeah, and it, and to summarize it, it's a film we've got to watch. I'd put it in my top 20. Oh, no, I was actually, would it encroach into my top 10? I think it's going to encroach into definitely in my top 20, if not high, high, high teens. Not even teens. So I'm going to say it's, it's, it's going to be, you know, middle of my top 20. Yeah. 
Most definitely. Most definitely. This is a 10 out of... I'd give this a Living History UK rating of 10 out of 10. Must watch. Put it on your list of things to watch if you haven't already. And remember, YouTube. It is on YouTube at the moment. Yes. Anyway, I think that's been a fantastic uh, podcast, Pete. And I think I think I'm looking forward to our next outing, Clingiest UK. So, those of you out there, make sure you check out the Facebook and uh, the other social media accounts. Uh, I believe our next outing, as a, a few of us, will be Tank Fest. But then there'll be a few more of us going to a, a Civil War event, isn't it, Pete? I think it will be. I won't be on that one because I'm busy that weekend. Uh, but yeah, that'll be our next outing as an English Civil War one. And then after that, we'll be at the Black Country Museum doing SAS. So remember, get out there and come and see. If you see us at a show, come and say hello and just uh, introduce yourselves. Until next time, keep, keep history, history alive. alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.